welcome to The Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of Title X and other family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In this podcast, part of our July 2021 Clinician Cafe on Polycystic Ovary Syndrome Across the Lifespan, we'll be discussing the prevalence and disparities around PCOS among U.S. women and what that means for Title X and other family planning clinicians in their practices today. Our guest today is Anita Nelson, MD. Dr. Nelson is Professor and Chair of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Western University of Health Sciences, Professor Emeritus of Obstetrics and Gynecology at David Geffen School of Medicine in UCLA, Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Keck School of Medicine at USC, and Medical Director of the Research Division of Essential Access Health. She received her MD from UCLA School of Medicine and completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at Harvard UCLA Medical Center. Dr. Nelson has conducted extensive research and published numerous papers on contraception, genital infections, menopause, and menstrual disorders. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Nelson. We're so excited to have you on today. So to start with, can you define PCOS for our audience and give the diagnostic criteria for the condition? Well, thank you for that kind introduction. And you're right, PCOS is the most common endocrinopathy of reproductive aged women. But today, it's really in a state of flux. There are actually three definitions that have been used over time and new classifications that are being proposed just as we speak. Now, that makes it very difficult to answer even the most basic of questions like, what's the prevalence of PCOS? What are the presenting complaints? What are the physical findings? What abnormalities in laboratories should we expect? And what labs are really needed? And what are the best treatments? And more fundamentally, what causes PCOS? And what are the short-term and long-term health consequences of PCOS? So I think part of the problem rests in the fact that PCOS is really a syndrome, isn't it? It's not a disease. It's really just a collection of symptoms and signs that many women can share some of, but not necessarily all of them, right? It's like overlapping Venn diagrams. I mean, where do you draw the outline, right? And really, if you just ask yourself, for example, not all women with PCOS have high BMIs, right? There are lean PCOS women. Not all women with PCOS have acne or hirsutism. Not all women with PCOS have insulin resistance, even if we could measure it clinically. And not all women with PCOS are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease later in life. Or believe it or not, not all women with PCOS need to have anovulatory cycling. That blows you away a little bit, right? But the one thing that all women with PCOS do share is difficulty getting pregnant. So I think clearly as we're imagining all of these different narratives, right, really ask yourself, what are those health features? And as women come in as individuals, how do we handle them? And to answer your question, how is it do we find PCOS today? I think we want to come back to the idea that the diagnostic criteria are in flux. It's PCOS started as a condition. You may remember way back when, when we had those two criteria that she had to have anovulation, less than eight periods a year. Remember that? And she either had to have hyperandrogenism with either acne or hirsutism, or when you tested her bloods, her androgen levels were high. 
Now, this is the classic NIH definition that really established PCOS as an androgen excess state. Either she made too much androgen or she was too sensitive to her normal levels of androgen. Now, as you know, this definition was replaced by and large by that Rotterdam criteria, which added a third option to those first two. And it said that a polycystic appearing ovary, and by golly, they've been duking it out over how you define that in different ages. So I don't want to get into that, but this is important to get an overview of what we're talking about. And they stated that women only needed to have two out of three of those criteria to be diagnosed with PCOS. Now, I'll tell you, that created a little bit of a havoc. If you think of those first two criteria, anovulation and androgen excess, well, that's the the traditional one. If you think of the second criteria, which was androgen excess with a polycystic appearing ovary, well, that took care of that really troublesome group of patients that the reproductive endocrinologists were dealing with who didn't have infrequent periods, but by golly, faced all the other uh, challenges that women with PCOS had. And that's fine. But remember, when you do two out of three, that means that it could be an ovulation with a polycystic appearing ovary. That's the third combination. And that's where the wrench got thrown into the system because technically that's a tautology. Every woman who has chronic anovulation from whatever cause will have a polycystic appearing ovary. And are those women all PCOSers? I mean, for instance, we had a patient who started putting on weight, right? And as she got higher and higher in her weight, her period started becoming irregular. Would we say that she had PCOS? And that's kind of where we stand right now. The third definition as coming around and trying to rescue us from this is making it back into being an androgen excess state. And what they say is she either has clinical or biochemical androgen excess, right? That one we had before. And she has to have either ovulatory dysfunction or a polycystic appearing ovary. Now that may get us back into the area of androgen excess as kind of a area of where we are. Now, just as a little snapshot of what's coming down the road, and that is we're going to have new subclassifications based on phenotypes. And I think that's really going to help But I think as far as basic definitions, right, we're talking mostly Rotterdam, but we're moving forward to getting some better insights, better control over what we were talking about. So now that we understand a more clear definition of the condition, what is the overall prevalence of PCOS and how do these different diagnostic criteria or you say emerging subtypes or phenotypes affect these diagnostic estimates? Well, that's a very good question, right? And clearly, the definition you use will change your estimate of the prevalence, right? For example, and Mm -hmm. this may not be terribly applicable, but I think it's really very informative. There was a recent study of primarily Caucasian women in Turkey, I'll give you that, but they found that the prevalence of PCOS, in quotes, using that classical NIH definition, the prevalence was 6.1%. But when you use the Rotterdam criteria with those two out of three criteria, that meant 19.9% of women had PCOS. And if you moved it back to the androgen excess definition that I alluded to, that prevalence dropped only slightly to 15.5%. Clearly, there are other problems when you're estimating prevalence. Many of the studies that we read really rely on women self-reporting whether they have PCOS or not. Now, the problem with this is that estimates are that 50 to 75% of women who have PCOS are unaware that they have that condition. And I think this says something about our underdiagnosing the problem, right? 
And to get a little bit more into that, the short and long-term health impacts imposed by these different subtypes, because they do seem to present a bit differently, um, how does that also affect how you treat different women who are presenting differently, but do seem to have PCOS? Yes. And I think what you're really asking here is, is there are disparities, right, here and across our country in PCOS and how might they might appear in practice in Title X clinics, for instance, right? And I think that studies finally are providing us information on this. And I was just swept away by that new announcement when they looked at life expectancy. I don't know if everybody's seen that, but between 2018 and 2020, life expectancy in the United States overall went down by nearly two years, which is the largest decline since we were at war in World War II. But if you dissected it, white Americans lost only 1.36 years, Black Americans lost 3.25 years, and Hispanic Americans lost 3.88 years. Now, that same sort of thing, finally, we're getting insights into PCOS. And among all of this confusion, and I don't mean to have stirred it up, but I think it really is important and very relevant, there are themes that have emerged. PCOS is very prevalent. Whatever number we pick every day, every one of us who's caring for reproductive aged women are going to see at least one, two, maybe even three women every day with this diagnosis. And the question we have to ask ourselves, are we really recognizing it? Or does the patient have to come in and tell us that she has PCOS? Now, that varies a lot. The prevalence of PCOS is two to three times higher in women with a BMI of greater than 30. Now, this accounts for many of the great regional differences that we're seeing in the United States. It's been estimated that in the South, 47.5% of women in reproductive age have PCOS. In this north central area of the country, it's almost one in four. It's 23%. Out west where I am, it's 18%. And even in the northeast, it's 11.5%. So it's everywhere. And we just need to look for it to help those women. But I think the other thing is that the manifestations of PCOS vary greatly. And this gets into some what you were asking about the health issues, but how does it appear in the woman, I think is a good start. There was a really early, early study, and I wish I could have done this research, right? Because they went to Italy and they studied in the US and they went over to Japan and they found that the prevalence of PCOS in each of those countries was relatively the same. Now, this was 30 years ago, right? Before we had a lot of the epidemics with obesity and those issues. A more recent study looked at, are you ready for this? The US, the UK, it looked at Spain and Greece, Australia, and Mexico and found the prevalence was very, very similar. But how it affected women was very much different. When you went to that first study, the big difference was in hirsutism. Italian women, a lot more hirsutism, right? The U.S. was in the middle and it was very rare as a manifestation in Japanese women. But clearly, the clinical presentations, even within groups, and I sort of put Asian in quotes because it really is very variable. Even when you use the Rotterdam criteria, a recent study looked at Chinese women in China and found that only 5.6% had PCOS. But if you go to the subcontinent of India, that over half of women were found to have polycystic appearing ovaries. Hispanic women, and I think this is where we're looking, got some really fine-grained data that can affect different groups of uh, our listeners here. Hispanic women in Los Angeles, 
Angeles had a prevalence of 13% for PCOS compared to Hispanic women in Mexico had half the rate there. So clearly diet and environment plays there. But if we're looking at, say, Hispanic women versus Caucasian women, in Hispanic women, higher levels of hirsutism, greater BMIs, more insulin resistance, right? And more hyperglycemia. If you're comparing to non-Hispanic Black women, right? We're doing Hispanics to non-Hispanic Black, higher rates of hypertriglyceridemia and even higher rates of metabolic syndrome. If we're looking at African-American women versus Caucasian, the overall prevalence is pretty similar when you correct for, particularly for weight. A recent study comparing non-Hispanic whites to non-Hispanic blacks, black women had higher blood pressure, both systolic and diastolic, more obesity, but they had less problems with lipids. But if you break that down, teens, teens had over double, almost triple the risk of metabolic syndrome. Can you believe that? 80%. 80% of PCOS girls had metabolic syndrome already. And the big issue, of course, was BMI. If we went to the older women, 20 to 34, I hate to call them older, but there the risk was for metabolic syndrome was only about 50% higher. But glucose was also an issue, as was blood pressure. So a big meta-analysis, again, helping us get insight into different groups that we had, that black women had similar fasting levels compared to whites, but an increase in insulin resistance. And all of this put together shows a disproportionate increased risk for cardiovascular disease risk burden. So I think this is really an important long-term help. But coming back to where we were When you first started talking, remember the only thing that really linked them together was infertility uh, or at least challenges getting pregnant. And I think it's really important. We don't sometimes look at disparities in this area, but I think they're really quite clear, right? What are the infertility services that are available? What are the treatment successes? They may be different for different groups. And if we just consider that we saw among Hispanic women and African-American women, higher rates of BMI, let's think of ourselves. Patient comes in and she's got an elevated BMI, PCOS for sure, and she wants to get pregnant. What's the first step that we do in that case? By and large, we send her home, tell her to lose 5 to 15% of her weight. Now, how can she do that? right? And PCOS is so much more challenging. She needs extra help for that. What aids are we giving her, right, to make that happen for her? And then if we think of who's going to be serving these women in the future, if we wear the training centers, yes, and what services, even in OBGYN departments, when we're doing, looking at what services are open to lower income versus higher income women, the training programs serving lower income women often don't have IVF programs, and some even lack advanced ovulation induction training. So we need to look at the whole issues where a PCOS touches women in different groups and really address those issues. I think that was a really important question. Thank you so much. So we've kind of discussed almost an epidemiological kind of overview of PCOS and as well as the disparities around it. Now, of course, most of our listeners are clinicians. They're in you know, a practice day to day. What is some of your advice for ways clinicians can take this information about disparities and diagnoses and apply to their own practices? Well, I think just being aware. 
is a big help, right? That um, patients may come in with acne and you're asking her about her menstrual cycles and she thinks, what the heck, right? But if you really focus on what she was worried about first and then broaden it into PCOS and really help her understand what's going on with her body, earlier detection can help us. We don't want to move too early into the adolescence because we want women to have a chance to establish ovulatory cycles before we slap labels on them, right? Uh, But since really the hallmark, the first step for short-term and long-term is lifestyles. The more insight the woman has into what's going on with her body, the more control she can have over this. Uh, And I think I don't want to put labels onto women, but giving them insight, being aware that this is a condition that might cause her some of the manifestations and really learn about her more. I think this is helpful. And I think one other thing that our clinicians can do is really stay tuned because I think there are going to be some new guidelines coming out from all of the authorities. I think ACOG is going to be involved. I think ASRM, the infertility groups are going to be part of this with these new phenotype subclassifications. So what are these important subgroups? groups of women who really do share similar manifestations and similar health risks, right? The women who have androgen excess and ovulatory dysfunction, we know those are the women who are much more likely to have insulin resistance and a higher risk for diabetes later in life, right? And maybe cardiovascular disease. The women who have ovulatory dysfunction and a polycystic appearing ovary really are no different in those health risks than other women who don't don't suffer those problems. So I think really sorting out if you can call it that way, is really going to be very helpful. And certainly, if people are thinking about these subgroups in their own minds now, I think they can not scare everybody. Oh, you have PCOS, right? And she'll go scrambling and find out all these other things. I think we oftentimes underestimate the psychological impact of this condition. So I think there are a lot of things that we can do, but mostly keeping our eyes open and individualizing. Well, this has all been some really fantastic advice for clinicians now and hopefully in the future when we see some more of this guidance coming out. But our time is running a bit short today. But before we go today, Dr. Nelson, would you give us some of your kind of final takeaway knowledge for clinicians going forward in their practice? Well, I think understanding all of the stuff, and I didn't mean to scramble the ideas here, but really I think more meaningful recommendations can be offered to women, right? That the outdated practice of prescribing metformin to treat quote unquote all PCOS is finally going to go away. But until then, I think my advice would be to continue to practice patient-centered medicine, right? Don't treat PCOS in general, but treat the problem the woman with PCOS presents with and then evaluate her individual health risks and provide individual counseling and develop plans to promote her health, right? Deal with PCOS almost like a modifier rather than a central problem. Since honestly, we really don't even know how to define PCOS and be patient with us on that. I hope I've shed some light on the recent controversies surrounding PCOS and on the disparities among women who have this condition. And I hope I've helped you all prepare for the new developments in this field and help you build bridges in your practice to individualizing care for women with different B phenotypes of PCOS. So my final advice would be stay tuned. And thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Nelson, and for sharing your time and expertise.
For more content, including previous episodes of The Family Planning Files, search for our podcast or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For transcripts of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. This training is supported by DHHS grant number 5, FPTPA 006029-03-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement of DHHS, OASH, and or OPA for the opinions or products described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you once again to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Family Planning Files.